Our passage for this morning is chapter 32 through chapter 37. I'm not going to read all six chapters, as beneficial as that would be. It breaks my heart not to. But I'm going to read the first six verses of chapter 32, sorry, the first five verses of chapter 32, and then we'll turn the page and read chapter 36. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Job 32, 1 to 6, or 1 to 5. So these three men ceased to answer Job, because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Berchel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now, Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. Now, chapter 36. And Elihu continued and said, Bear with me a little, and I will show you, for I have yet something to say on God's behalf. I will get my knowledge from afar and ascribe righteousness to my Maker. For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Behold, God is mighty and does not despise any He is mighty in strength of understanding. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their right. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous. But with kings on the throne, he sets them forever, and they are exalted. And if they are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction, then he declares to them their work and their transgressions, that they are behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. If they listen and serve him, they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. But if they do not listen, they perish by the sword and die without knowledge. The godless in heart cherish anger. They do not cry for help when he binds them. They die in youth, and their life ends among the cult prostitutes. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ears by adversity. He also allured you out of distress into a broad place where there was no cramping, and what was set on your table was full of fatness. But you are full of the judgment on the wicked. Judgment and justice seize you. Beware, lest wrath entice you into scoffing, and let not the greatness of the ransom turn you aside. Will your cry for help avail to keep you from distress, or all the force of your strength? Do not long for the night when people vanish in their place. Take care. Do not turn to iniquity, for this you have chosen rather than affliction. 
Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed for him his way? Or who can say, you have done wrong? Remember to extol his work of which men have sung. All mankind has looked on it. Man beholds it from afar. Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. For he draws up the drops of water. They distill his mist in rain, which the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thunderings of his pavilion? Behold, he scatters his lightning about him and covers the roots of the sea. For by these he judges peoples. He gives food in abundance. He covers his hands with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. Its crashing declares his presence. The cattle also declare that he rises. You may be seated as we pray. Father, teach us this morning from your word the wisdom you would have for us. We together collectively ask for your voice, your spirit to be active in our midst. In Christ's name, amen. Those of you who have been with this series or are familiar with the book of Job know the tragic way that it begins. Job loses all of his wealth and all of his children in one day. And a short time later, he is stricken with sores from head to toe. It's the kind of reversal that is difficult to fathom. It's the definitive riches to rags story. Some of us are able to connect with aspects of Job's story, even in the narrowest of emotional levels. And we just barely grasp but a glimpse of the pain that washed over him wave upon wave. So there is Job in deep agony, and his three friends arrive. The scriptures tell us they came to show him sympathy and to comfort him. He's lying on the ground, destitute, and they sit down on the ground with him. And for seven days, they sit there with him on the ground without speaking a single word. But then Job breaks the silence. And the flood gates open. All of a sudden, these three loyal friends become Job's three chief accusers. They relentlessly beat down Job with accusations, calling him the vilest of sinners. They have this mechanical, giant lever in the sky view of God. And so they think, if, something, if some terrible suffering has happened to somebody, it must be because Job has done some terrible evil. Now, in their thinking, if he was just willing to fess up and make nice with God, everything would be fine. But he won't. He insists that he hasn't committed any kind of heinous sin. And so the three friends become more and more frustrated with him, and finally they stop speaking altogether. Meanwhile, in those exchanges, Job has been pressing into God, albeit with a certain raw honesty. In the beginning of the conversation, Job has no hope whatsoever. 
He says, God's unjust, he said against me, and what hope does a mere man have in the face of such a powerful God? But as Job continues to bring his complaint to God, he begins to have hope. Hope that a mediator, a, a, a God, or God himself, would act in some way as a mediator between him and God. That somehow the gap between he and God would be closed and he would have an audience with God. And so he closes his exchange with his three friends with a long speech. We looked at it last week. And the point of that long speech was this. The only way he can make sense of his senseless suffering, the only way anyone can make sense of their senseless suffering is to know that God, God alone, is the source of wisdom. He is the one who is wise. And then Job declares his innocence, and he's done speaking. And we're met in the book of Job with a deafening silence. Will God answer Job? Will Job finally learn that he actually is right with God and has been all along? Will he learn that his suffering brought glory to God and pronounced judgment on Satan? Will Job's three friends be forced to eat their words And renounce their anemic theology. So we wait. 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 But instead of God's voice, a random fourth friend appears. Elihu. It's a Hebrew name, which means he is my God. And if you put Elihu's four speeches together into one like they do in chapters 32 through 37, it forms the longest speech in the entire book. What are we to make of this Elihu? What are his words doing here? I mean, is he just kind of a continuation of the three friends, the kind of final mouthpiece of their failed theology? After all, he likewise accuses Job He likewise affirms the basic balance of the moral universe. So what are we to make of Elihu's speech? How are we to read it? Fortunately, the book of Job itself gives us four clues as to what this speech is doing. The first clue comes at the end of the book. So turn with me to chapter 42 and look at verses 7 and 8. Picking up in the middle of verse 7, chapter 42, middle of verse 7, Yahweh's now speaking, and he says, My, he's speaking to Eliphaz, which is one of the three friends, the kind of ringleader of the three friends. And he says, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you've not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. And then at the end of verse 8, he says, For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Job's three friends are singled out for God's anger, but Elihu is noticeably absent from this judgment. His words receive 
the same, do not receive the same condemnation that the other friends received. There's something different about his words than the other three friends. If you, if you look at Job, God's speech to Job in chapter 38, verse 2, Job himself is rebuked by God. But never is Elihu corrected. He is the only one who speaks who is not corrected by God. So Elihu's speech, in addition to being the longest, is the only one that God doesn't correct. That is a significant clue. The second clue is that Elihu's speech echoes what God himself says. So when I read chapter 32, the beginning of chapter 32 at the outset of our sermon, we noticed that it said that, uh, that Elihu's anger burned against Job. But why does it burn against Job? And that's what we find in his speech. So look at chapter 35. We'll be doing a lot of page turning today because we're doing these six chapters. Chapter 35 is one of Elihu's speeches, and he opens or he closes it with this summary of everything he's been saying up to that point. Job opens his mouth in empty talk, he multiplies words without knowledge. Now flip ahead just one page to chapter 38. Now Yahweh is speaking to God or to Job. And what does Yahweh say to Job? Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Do you see that? Elihu's charge against Job is the same as God's. Now we also know from 32 uh, verse 3 that Elihu's anger burned against Job's three friends, and we know from we read in chapter 42 that Yahweh's anger burned against those three friends. So, Elihu's words, his view of things matches God's. And if you look at these six chapters and and the, the, the way Elihu speaks, Elihu focuses a lot of his words on extolling the greatness of God, and particularly the greatness of God in creation. So at the end of chapter 36, which we read at the outset, we saw that, right? The lightning bolts and the clouds and the, di- uh, the mist and the rain. And chapter 37 is much the same. Well, when you get to God's words, that's exactly what he does with Job. He shows him his power in his creation. Here's the point. The basic thrust of what Elihu says finds later resonance with God's words. So that's a clue as to how we read Elihu. Here's a third clue. The third clue is Job's silence. If you've been reading through the book of Job, every time one of his friends speaks, Job speaks up to defend himself and say, you got it all wrong. You're not making sense of things. You don't understand me. You don't understand God. You're totally lost. But look there at the end of chapter 33. Verses 31, 32, 33. He says, pay attention, O Job. So in chapter 32, Job, or Eliu kind of addresses the three friends. In 33, now he's addressing Job. And he ends his first speech addressing Job saying, pay attention, O Job. Listen to me, be silent, and I will speak. If you have any words, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me. Be silent and I'll teach you wisdom. 
At that point, given the pattern of Job up to this point, you are expecting Job's voice. But all we hear are crickets. Silence. And to draw attention to that, look how 34 begins. Then Elihu answered and said. Well, who is he answering? Nobody has spoken. But that's the refrain that's used every time one of Job's other three friends responds to Job's comments. So it's almost like he's answering the silence. It's drawing attention to Job's silence. You see, Job is sitting there, and he's actually listening. He's being silent, and he's learning wisdom from Elihu. Third clue. Fourth clue is the place of the speech in the book. We've already seen that it's a long speech, but it's sandwiched between Job's final speech and God's speech. Now, that's a pretty important juncture in the book. In a certain way, we can say Elihu's speech is preparing the way for God's appearance on the scene. Think about it. As John the Baptist is for Jesus, so Elihu is for Yahweh. He makes the pathway clear by correcting errors and reorienting the people back to God. So based on those four clues, I think we can say Elihu's words are good words. We're meant to learn from them. They are commendable. They prepare Job, and I think they prepare us, the reader, for God's very words that will follow. The book itself teaches us how to understand Elihu's words. Elihu's words prepare Job to meet God in his suffering. And I believe that the the ways Elihu prepares Job to meet God in his suffering actually are instructive for us. I think that's why it's given here. So we're going to look at four ways that Elihu helps Job prepare to meet God in the midst of his suffering. And that will be our sermon. So four ways that Elihu helps Job prepare to meet God in the midst of his suffering. The first way Elihu prepares Job to meet God is he comes humbly alongside him. So again, look at... uh, Well, I want to just compare it for a second. Eliphaz, remember the ringleader of the three friends, began his speech by telling Job in chapter 4, your words have upheld him who was stumbling. In the past, you helped the people who were stumbling, he says. But now that stumbling has come to you, and you are impatient. Remember who that was innocent ever perished. In other words, he says, stop your complaining. God's giving you a taste of your own medicine, and it's just what you deserve. And that's how the three friends are throughout. But, but listen in chapter 32. Remember, Uh, sorry, chapter 33. Listen in chapter 33 to how Elihu speaks to Job. In verse 3, he says he's going to speak righteously and sincerely. But then in verse 4, he acknowledges his dependence on God. Look at verse 4. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. He's totally dependent on God. But then, here's where it really stands out in verses 6 and 7. Behold, I am toward God as you are. 
I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. What a beautiful statement. I too, just like you, am like a, just a pinch from a piece of clay that God's made into something by his spirit. And so he says in verse 7, Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. No words even remotely like this were ever spoken by Job's three friends. And how instructive it is for us. Let me just address us for a moment because every one of us has opportunity to come alongside those who are suffering. And when we do, our posture and our words should affirm our common humanity with them. We all alike are pinched off from a piece of clay. We alike are toward God in the same way they are. Or as the hymn writer put it, we are all alike frail children of dust. And with this humble posture that realizes our own smallness that's shared with them, we should also then set people at ease like Elihu did in verse 7. We are for them. They must know that. They need to not be afraid of us or to think that the pressure will be heavy upon them as a result of our presence with them. We want them knowing that our presence alongside them will actually take away weight from them and not add to it. Now, Elihu is going to go on and confront sin in Job. And so there might be a time where you need to say hard things to somebody who's going through suffering. But like Elihu, we need to do that in a way that encourages and strengthens by keeping both eyes, ours and theirs, fixed on God. Because they're they're ultimately going to be encountering God. And that God, like Elihu, is gracious and gentle. We are told in the scriptures, a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. When Jesus came to the earth, he said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Yes, we'll need to speak boldly at times, especially where sin is explicit. But always with a humble humble posture as someone who is likewise pinched from the piece of clay. Elihu came humbly alongside Job. So, that's the first lesson for us. We could use the language of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. To, to summarize it, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. And that brings us to the second way that Elihu prepares Job to meet God. Now, like the first three friends, Elihu points out Job's sin. 
But unlike the three friends, he refuses to speculate as to what that sin is. He doesn't guess at what Job might have done to deserve such suffering. He doesn't try to figure out Job's motives and then impugn him for them. Now, I think this is deeply instructive for us. Because the Bible makes clear that in healthy Christian relationships, we're going to help each other see our sin. And when someone goes down the treacherous path of sin, we are supposed to call them back, first individually and privately without talking to others about it, and then if they continue down that path, collectively as a church. But we need to be particularly careful that we only do this when the sin is clear and explicit, well attested. The biblical threshold is two or three witnesses. It's not time to speculate as to heart motives. It's not time to guess at what someone might have done. Now when there is explicit sin, and the person gives us permission, it is good to probe deeper into the heart motives that are there and ask questions related to that. And with certain dear friends, we'll have the kind of relationship we'll actually be asking them to speak into some of the deeper issues of the heart to help us examine ourselves because it's hard to see our own hearts. But when it comes to calling out sin, like Job's three friends does, like Elihu does, we must be careful to call out sin only that is explicitly there. And doubly so, doubly so when someone is going through suffering. I think of... uh, a woman I know who, uh, from, a, from a previous context, whose husband, who we all respected as a man of God, was arrested because of previous crimes he'd committed against a minor that nobody knew about. It just totally devastated her. And like Job, she had some raw words for God. Now, In the midst of her pain, I was not pointing out her raw words and how they were wrong. I was just trying to encourage her and give her hope. But over the course of a year, those words became more raw and more bitter and more cold. And it did come time for me to encourage. There was another woman who was counseling her. And I encouraged that woman to raise that and help her see maybe what was going on in her own heart. I say that to say, you don't just come right on and say, here's the sin in the midst of someone's suffering. You allow for that rawness. But if it does set in and persist, there's a gentle way, a humble way to address it. Back to Elihu. So Elihu, unlike the three friends, refuses to speculate about Job's past sins or heart motives. But that doesn't mean he allows the pendulum to swing too far. It doesn't mean he's not willing to say anything about Job's sin. He's heard Job repeating the same error over and over. And this was Job's error. He accuses God of being unjust, all the while defending his own innocence. Job's doing that over and over. That's, that's why, remember, that's why Elihu in chapter 32, we read at the outset, is angry at Job because he justifies himself 
instead of justifying God. Now just look at a sampling of this. Look in chapter 33, verses 9 to 11. He tells Job, 33, 9 to 11. He tells Job, you say, I am pure without transgression. I am clean and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasion against me. He counts me as enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Summary, I'm right. God is wrong. Chapter 34, verses 5 and 6. 5 and 6. Elihu says, 34, 5 and 6. For Job has said, I am in the right and God has taken away my right. In spite of my right, I'm counted a liar. My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. Again, I'm in the right. God is in the wrong. And so he concludes his second major speech at the end of, verse 30, end of chapter 34 by saying, For he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. You see that? He's multiplying words against God, and that's what Elihu's confronting him about. Or at the end of his third speech, chapter 35, we already saw it, Job opens his mouth in empty talk. He multiplies words without knowledge. That is the charge. Now, occasionally he will compare him to wicked men, He'll say you're like wicked men or you're in the company, you're walking among wicked men and the scoffers. But he's, when you look at it, he's only saying that you're doing that in the way you speak. You talk like the wicked men when you talk like this, Job, and I want you to see that. Now, I don't have time to go through all the examples of Job doing just that. But almost every chapter that Job speaks in his exchange with the friends, he's saying things like, does it seem good to you, God, to oppress to despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked. He destroys both the blameless and the wicked, he'll say. See, Job's theme is consistent. He is saying, I'm in the right, which he's right about that, but he's saying God is in the wrong. God's not just. He's just a capricious God. And while these are raw words, and understandable. Even God, when he confronts Job, is so gentle in how he does it. They are nonetheless empty words. He is speaking wrongly of God, and Elihu confronts him for it. Job is so sure of his own innocence, he's no longer sure that God is innocent. But he should be every bit as sure, in fact, even more sure, that God is innocent. But he's not. Job's words have been accusatory against God. So when Elihu hears Job defending himself rather than God, with his own ears, he knows he's done this. He rebukes him for that and for nothing else. So, sometimes we do need to help other people see their sin. A good friend will help us see our sin, even in the midst of suffering. But they'll do it lovingly, humbly, at the right time, without speculating. But they will help us see it nonetheless. I just want to pause here and say something. 
I've been confronted for my sin by others many times because I'm a sinner. No one's ever done it the right way because my own sinful heart gets all defensive and they've just done everything wrong, right? So don't count on, don't be like, well, you, didn't, you weren't quite humble enough in how you came to me. You were a little bit too speculative on that. You know, just receive it. They might even be a little bit amiss, but they actually, it means they love you if they're coming to you and having a hard conversation that you might get your walls up about. But it means they love you. Oh, well, Elihu. Elihu prepares Job to meet God by addressing his explicit sin and only his explicit sin. But Elihu doesn't simply point out Job's sin. He also warns him of future dangers. You see, suffering makes us susceptible to future pitfalls. So the third thing we notice about Elihu and how he prepares Job to meet God is that he warns him of potential pitfalls that suffering gives rise to. He warns him of potential pitfalls that suffering gives rise to. Now, if, if you're thinking about this big lump of chick, six chapters, again, chapter 32, he's focused on the three friends. Chapters 33, 34, 35, he's really honing in on Job's issue with speaking against God. And then in chapter 36 is where he really starts to warn him about the pitfalls. So look with me at verses 16 to 25. I'm actually going to go through each one of the warnings he gives. This is chapter 36. Verses 16 to 25. I'm going to go through each one of these warnings because I think we're all wise to heed these warnings. And particularly if you're going through some sort of heavy trial, some sort of great weight, these are great warnings that God would have all of us hear. So the first one is there in verses 16 and 17. He says, he's talking about God and he's speaking to God, of God to Job. He also allured you out of distress into a broad place where there was no cramping. And what was set on your table was full of fatness. In other words, he's saying, whatever God's doing in this affliction, he's actually doing something good. You might not see it, but that's what God's doing. He's doing something good. He says, but you are full of the judgment on the wicked. Judgment and justice sees you. Job is just obsessed with fairness. Elihu's telling Job that God's doing good things in the midst of affliction, but Job is so fixated on the injustice that he says it's seized him. Now again, it's okay to ask God certain raw questions. Why am I going through this? This is not a shutdown of Job, but When that injustice seizes you, when you become fixated on the injustice of our situation, when that seizes us, we're left in a dangerous spot. We'll eventually suffocate if we allow its tentacles to dig into us. The injustice will shrivel up. That's the first warning. Then verse 18. Beware, lest wrath entice you into scoffing. And let not the greatness of the ransom turn you aside. In other words, be careful that your suffering doesn't turn you into a scoffer. 
That is, people who turn away from God and speak ill of him. It's the second warning. Third warning is in verse 19. Will you cry for help? Will your cry for help avail to keep you from distress? Or all the force of your strength? If you are going through a hard time right now, let us rid ourselves of the notion that we're going to be able to fix our situation by our own toiling and worrying. Jesus said, Do not worry about tomorrow. Which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? This doesn't mean we don't cry out to God with all our strength, but we understand it's not on us. This weight is something we can put on God's shoulders. Leave it off of us. We're not going to fix it. We're not going to change our situation. That's not on us. Let's just give it to God. When we do, we leave it in capable hands. The next warning is in verse 20. Do not long for the night when people vanish in their place. What he's talking about here is looking for an escape. In hardship, we're, we need to be careful that we're not always looking for an escape. So Job is thinking, hey, let's just sleep it off. I'm finally going to get to bed and just sleep for a while. For others, it's drinking it off, filling ourselves with pleasures to mask the pain, or pouring ourselves into career, our careers that we're distracted but we need to be careful of longing for that escape. Now, sleep is good. Diversion is good. The night's not bad. We need rest and distraction. But the danger is when it becomes this deep longing for it, a longing that we, we feel like that's the only way we can cope and survive is with this, and it becomes a sort of idol for us. Then there's another warning in verses 21 to 23. Take care, do not turn to iniquity, for this you've chosen rather than affliction. Uh, he's saying, instead of allowing God to do his work in affliction, you've turned to this accusing God. So, so don't keep in that sin. If there are certain sin patterns in your life that, that, that you're doing in the midst of your suffering, don't keep going back to them. Job must guard his steps so that he doesn't keep going down the path to iniquity. The last one is verse 24. And actually, verse 24 starts a section that runs all the way to the end of this last speech in 37. And it relates to the, the, the fourth lesson we'll learn, but I, I'll keep it under this section for now. It says, remember to extol his work, of which men have sung. Or look at 37.2. Under the whole earth, he lets it go, and his lightning to the... Oh, that was verse 3. I'm like, that's not right. 37.2. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice. Later on in verse 14, stop and consider the wondrous works of God. When we're in the midst of hardship, we must keep reminding ourselves of God's wonderful works. We must avoid the lure to fixate on our own situation and to take our eyes off of God's wondrous works. 
So Elihu prepares Job to meet God by warning him of potential pitfalls that suffering gives rise to. And we do well to seize these same warnings. Now I want to close with my final observation. Because I think it's the most foundational for understanding Elihu's speech. Elihu prepares Job to meet God by moving his eyes off of himself and on to God. Remember 32.2, he justifies himself rather than God. His eyes are on himself rather than God. So that's really what all six chapters are about. But, but you see it in the, the last chapter, that last part of chapter 36 and all of 37. And you also see it because his arguments are repeatedly, repeatedly upholding God's righteousness. Job erred in being more concerned about his own in, innocence than about God's innocence. So Elihu is trying to help him see that God is just. Yes, he's going to point out, you're speaking wrongly. But really what he's doing is saying, just look at how good God is. I wish I could just dig into so much. He, He talks about how he governs the world well. Our broken, foul world. We need a good king. We need someone who is just. Who is just and can rule this world? God is. Look to him. He talks about things that he knows are near to Job's heart, caring for the widow and the poor and how God does that. And he says, look, that's what God does. You know God does that. Why are you taking aims at God? He talks about how even governments are set up by God. And God will ultimately bring down unjust governments. Job, just look at history. You know what God's doing. You can trust God, he says. But I want to look at one particular example because it's a really interesting one. It's in chapter 33, and it's in verses 19 to 30. Now, I want to explain what's going on here. This is 33, 19 to 30. I want to explain what's going on here before I read it. See, Elihu tells Job that God speaks in all sorts of different ways, but always for our good. So he tells him he can speak through dreams and visions and also through our suffering. Now remember, at this point, they didn't have the revealed word of God. So as Hebrews says, in those days, that's how God revealed himself, is through dreams and visions and things like this. Well, he says he also reveals himself through our suffering. But when he describes God speaking through our suffering he randomly starts talking about God sending an angel to the sufferer to intercede for the sufferer so that in the end, the sufferer is praising God and telling others of God's goodness. So so listen as I read it. Verses 19 to 30 of chapter 33. Man is also rebuked with pain in his bed, and with continual strife in his bones. So back in 15, he talked about the 14 and 15 talked about the different ways God speaks. Now he's talking about how he, how he speaks in our suffering. Man is also rebuked with pain in his bed and with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest foods. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near to the pit, and his life to those who bring death. So he's saying, the very things you're experiencing, Job, is actually God's voice to you. He's speaking to you, right? But then, here it is. 
Verse 23, if there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand, to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him, and says, deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Let the flesh become fresh with youth. And let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Vigor. Then man prays to God and he accepts him and he sees his face with a shout of joy and he restores to man his righteousness. Now this man sings before men and says, I have sinned and perverted what was right and it was not repaid to me. He's redeemed my soul from going down to the pit and my life shall look upon the light. I'm not going to keep going. But do you see what Elihu is doing? He's saying, you're very suffering. God is speaking to you in that. It was C.S. Lewis who said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone. He's saying, God's doing that for you, Job, in his suffering, but he's working good, and even in your suffering, he is near to you. He doesn't know exactly what it's like. Maybe it's like uh, an angel being near to you, some sort of mediator who figures out how to pay a ransom. I wonder what that could be pointing forward to. But he says, God is speaking to you, and he's near to you in your suffering. In other words, in all this, instead of being distracted from God, let it see that God is good. Elijah was saying, Job, listen. God's reign is good. He can be trusted. Look at all these things you know that he does. He's righteous. Look at how he speaks to you and your suffering. Look at how he's there with you. You can trust him. Get your eyes off of yourself and on to the greatness of God. So, you who are suffering here this morning, you can trust God. I know. There's so much pain, and heartache, and injustice swirling around you. Maybe from something that happened a decade or more ago. It's an off-kilter universe, and it doesn't make sense, and that racks your soul. But God is a just ruler. And we know that now so much better than they did in Job's day. Better than Elihu knew. Because we know that that God actually did send a mediator who would pay the ransom to fix this foul world of ours. Who would come and bear the full weight of the injustice of this world. And then even our own sin upon his shoulders. And bear the cup of God's wrath rightly poured out on all that's broken in this world. He bore that on the cross. He bore what's wrong with this world on himself, including what's wrong in me about this world. He bore it on himself. And then he was able to take that full cup, which was proven when he physically was raised from the dead, showing that death and sin had been conquered. And so we know that this Jesus is, is in fact a good and just God, we can trust Jesus, the good king. My mom lost her mother when she was 16 years old. Her father died just after I was born. 
But the hardest thing she ever went through wasn't either of those. And when she was in her lowest, low state, she's told me she couldn't get out of bed in the morning and that that was a victory because she wasn't hiding underneath the bed. And she said there were two truths that carried her through that time. One, that God is powerful. And two, that God is good. 